This is really gross, but dirty trash cans can pose a serious health risk to you and your family. The pungent smell can attract rats and flies, not to mention maggots, both of which can contain dangerous diseases transferable to humans. Your dirty trash can is susceptible to harboring dangerous bacteria. Contact Brandon at Fitz Trash Bin Cleaning today at 440-752-1533 or find them on Facebook. Veteran owned and operated and eco-friendly. Again, call Brandon at 440-752-1533. Redline Radio LLC is proud to partner with Growing Wings Adult Services for the creation of our brand new state-of-the-art production studio. Growing Wings Adult Services has been assisting adults with disabilities in the Northeast Ohio area for the past five years. For more information on how Lisa and the team at Growing Wings can assist your family, you can contact Lisa at 234-334-7547 today. Detroit Auto Parts is the official parts store of Red Line Radio LLC. They have two convenient locations on the east side. You can call 216-531-7373 or on the west side, call 216-398-7373. Mention Red Line Radio and receive 10% off your purchase. It's the official home and auto parts store of Red Line Radio LLC. If you need any custom t-shirts, banners, stickers, anything like that made, then you reach out to Incredible Keepsakes. As Diane always says, cherished moments are made to last forever. You can reach Incredible Keepsakes at 440-242-9648 or check out their websites at IncredibleKeepsakes.com. And don't forget to mention that Redline Radio sent you. For all of our programming information, you can check us out on all social media platforms. You can listen to all of our great programming and live 24-hour music on the Redline Radio LLC app. You can find it on the Google Play Store, but you can also check us out at RedlineRadioLLC.com where we are always live. crazy mind contains language that may not be suitable for all listeners. Discretion is advised, but will be completely ignored.
Oh, you know what that sound means. That means it is most definitely Friday night. Running solo here yet again at Money's Crazy Mind. I lost my little assistant that I've had here for the past few weeks. Nick has moved on to bigger and better things. Uh, wish Nick all the best of luck in everything that he is doing uh, to improve his career in the uh, film industry, television industry. He is working with a, a channel out of uh, Toledo. But welcome in to the asylum, everybody. No time for fun and games this week. We have a ton of of stuff to get to so we are going to kick it off with crazy shit you find on the internet and as always crazy shit you find on the internet is proudly brought to you by money's crazy mind and redline radio llc is proudly sponsored by tattoo therapy inc in the greenbrier shopping center at 6259 pearl road parma heights ohio you can contact riley today at 440 440- 747-7130. They are one of the premier tattoo parlors in Northeast Ohio. And don't forget to tell them that Red Line Radio sent you. All right, so let's get right down to it. First thing we have here, Stranger Things opens up a pizza pop upside down in London, but no one can tell me this ain't a demon vagina. Ain't no way I'm walking into a devil gorgonussy for a margarita. I don't disagree. That's exactly what I see when I look at it. I know what they were trying to go for. I know what they were trying to do. They were trying to make it look like the entrance um, that you see come out of the wall in the school um, at the end of season one when Eleven went into the upside down to try to fight the uh, Demogorgon at the end. It kind of also looks like something that we see at the end of season four, or at least the the middle of season four of Stranger Things as well. Uh, But I I don't, I I can't disagree. That definitely looks like some demon puss puss. All right. Next one up. Think I need an eye test. Thought this was Bert from Sesame Street. First time I looked at this, I said the exact same thing. Bro, get that kid a haircut, man. That That's all I can say. It definitely looks like Bert wearing a scarf. I think I now know why my wife is in love with Cinderella so much. Look at that honky-tonk badonkadonk that she got going on there. And this guy, no wonder he forgot her face as, as she ran from the palace. Couldn't have said it better myself. One more for you guys here, and this one's the most important one, I think. How toddlers are basically gremlins. They freak the freak out when if you get them wet. They destroy all your appliances. It's a terrible idea to feed them after midnight. It's nearly impossible to understand what the hell they're talking about. They complain about sunlight. It's never a good idea to take them to the movies. Hello. They drool more than you thought possible. When they're cute, they're unbelievably cute. When they aren't cute, run. Run very fast. Yeah, toddlers are gremlins. Most definitely. Most definitely. All right. 
Well, that is going to do it for crazy ish you find on the internet this week. Um, you know, like I said, we got a ton of stuff to get to in a very short time to get to it. So we are going to keep trucking here on Money's Crazy Mind. But first, if you guys want a chance to hang out with me tonight, I will be at Smedley's immediately following Money's Crazy Mind. I'm a nanny and I agree, my wife says. Yes. Toddlers are assholes. They're evil. They're gremlins. Um, but I will be at Smedley's tonight uh, cheering on my my best friend in the whole wide world. Well, one of my best friends in the whole wide world, Tony Gonzalez and Jester's Revenge. I- immediately following Money's Crazy Mind, I am heading right down there. All right. So uh, everybody knows June 8th is probably Christmas Day Part 1 for me. That is Ghostbusters Day. And this year... They did not skimp out on the amount of stuff that they revealed during Ghostbusters Day. We're going to get through it as quick as possible because the the main bulk of our story tonight is going to take a very long time to get through. So let's not waste another second. It's not Saba True News this week. It's Ghostbusters News, and it's brought to you by our friends at Incredible Keepsakes. Money's Crazy Mind is brought to you by Incredible Keepsakes. At Incredible Keepsakes, cherished moments are made to last forever. T-shirts, binders, cups, you name it, Incredible Keepsakes can make it. Reach out to them today at IncredibleKeepsakes.com or 440-242-9648. Don't forget to mention you heard about them on Redline Radio, LLC. All right, special shout out to um, La Orchestra Gothique for this uh, version of the Ghostbusters theme song here. I want to thank them for letting me use it. So let's get it right into it. Hasbro took the stage first at EctoFest, and they provided an update on the Ghostbusters HasLab Proton Pack and an Ivan Reitman action figure. So here we have the main news that you see about the Proton Pack. They fixed the stand so that you're going to be able to have the uh, Neutrona wand with the wire attached to it. And let me tell you, as somebody who wears a Proton Pack, that total weight of 15 pounds, that right there is the best piece of news we got about this whole thing. So if you're not going to attach an Alice frame to it like every other Ghostbuster on the planet is probably going to do that ordered these things, the shoulder straps that are attached to the back of the pack there, you can see them. The max that they go out is 46 inches. The minimum that they go in is 28. Now, they do look a lot like Alice Pack uh, straps, so that's pretty cool. But I'm pretty sure almost everybody's going to be attaching an Alice frame to this thing. They include hardware to do that. That was another one of the updates we got. And then the waist strap. We got some hefty Ghostbusters out there. That waist strap goes to a maximum of 60 inches and a minimum of 13. 13. Who the fuck is wearing this thing? A one-year-old? All right, but to the right of that, we've got a picture of the clippered valve and the interior of the Cyclotron, which we see Phoebe taking apart in Ghostbusters Afterlife. Guess what, ladies and gentlemen? Hasbro's giving us real metal parts. Not just on those two parts that you see there, but the ion arm as well.
originally this was going to be a 16 page journal but the folks at hasbro have decided to throw in an additional 16 pages making it a 32 page journal it is chock full of everything the journal is said to chronicle egon spangler's time as a ghostbuster from before the manhattan cross rip to the return of vigo the carpathian and beyond including brand new content shedding light on some of just what our favorite straight lace scientist was up to during his time in somerville our writers worked closely with our partners at sony consumer products and ghost core to offer fans this incredible official Ghostbusters collectible stuffed with sketches, designs, musings, newspaper clippings, promo flyers, never-before-seen equipment, and some carefully placed Easter eggs. So that was direct from HasLab. Also, you see that there is some marshmallow goopy goop on uh, the last picture of the pack there. That it was another stretch goal that we reached. Mine's probably just going to end up in the garbage. I'm not putting that crap on a $500 Proton Pack. No way. I saved weight, saved money for three months to be able to afford that damn thing to put that shit on it. All right, but finally, Hasbro wasn't done there. They also revealed a Hasbro Pulse limited edition plasma series Ivan Reitman action figure. Now, if you follow Ghostbusters or you follow Hollywood News, you know that we lost Ivan earlier this year, right uh, right after the Super Bowl went off the air. It was a terrible day uh, at my house. Um, I, I was completely emotionally distraught. But when Hasbro says limited edition, they mean limited edition, as only two of these Ivan Reitman figures have been made. The first has its permanent home at Ghost Corp headquarters being displayed in their office on the Sony Picture Studio lot, while the other is going to be auctioned off during a fundraising event to benefit the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles. Stay tuned for more information on how you can bid for this amazing figure and help support a cause near and dear to Ivan's heart. All right, so that is all the information about the new Proton Pack and about the Ivan Reitman action figure. Let's move it on here. More Ghostbusters news right here for you. Video game fans, we are getting the Ghostbusters VR Academy, and it is going to be not just for the MetaQuest 2, but also PlayStation VR, and you get to drive Ecto-1 in it. That's all I'm going to say about that. But it also announces that there is an animated Ghostbusters film in development. Not only did the creative duo of Gil, uh, Gil Cannon and Jason Reitman announce that there is going to be a follow-up to Ghostbusters Afterlife in the works, but an animated feature film is also being made by Sony Pictures Animation. The untitled, untitled animated feature will be helmed by Jennifer Kluska, Chris Pronsky and written by Brendan Hughes. It's said to include an all-new team and what is being described as an all-new take. And Gil and Jason did say that all three of these people behind this new Ghostbusters uh, animated movie are true Ghostbusters fans and that we can trust them. 
in Reitman we trust, so I trust Jason on that one. And also, you see it there, Ghostbusters animated series being developed by Netflix by Jason and Gil Cannon. A new Ghostbusters animated series is in the works with Jason and Gil announced as executive producers. This was uh, announced from Variety before the EctoFest event. Um, and that is really all that we know right now. Production is being handled by Netflix and Ghost Corp and is based on the Sony Columbia Pictures. The series will mark the third Ghostbusters animated television show uh, following the real Ghostbusters and extreme Ghostbusters, continuing on the characters and the stories introduced in the previous animated series. Uh, and uh, this is a um, pride project by Ivan Reitman. This is something that he wanted to make before he died. So this is definitely, definitely, definitely lovingly done in his memory. Um, Jason said, uh, actually Sony entertainment said Jason uh, is the thing that you dream about a world-class signature storyteller, visionary filmmaker and dream producing writing partners and having a remarkable understanding of community of commercial quality cinema. We are thrilled about this upcoming pipeline from these guys. We're excited to have evolved our storytelling partnership in a full fledged production company and couldn't be more proud to have a home at Sony pictures the studio is most committed to the theatrical movie-going experience. And that final quote was from Jason Reitman and Gil Keenan. Finally, the big news that everybody was waiting for. But before we do that, Ghostbusters are returning to comic books, and it's about damn time. As part of the Ghostbusters Day coverage, news was made... Uh, uh, news was announced that there will be a limited edition series expected to be released next year from Dark Horse Comics. The news was made as part of the EctoFest event taking place at Sony Pictures. And um, we've got a unique story that we want to tell in this exclusive limited series, and it will be canon. Unfortunately, IDW is out. Dark Horse is in. Complications due to the COVID-19 pandemic caused what would be the final comic to be uh, to be delayed, just like everything was, and it hit stores in July of 2020, and then IDW announced bankruptcy, so that is causing a lot of why they are moving on to Dark Horse Comics. And then right underneath that, the news we were waiting for all night, Ghostbusters Afterlife is getting a sequel. The announcement was made by the team of Jason Reitman and Gil Kanan. Much like Afterlife was given a working title of Rust City, this next involve, uh, next installment also has received a code name, Reitman Revealing. We're writing another movie. Tonight, we're going to share the code name for the next chapter in the Spengler family story. The last time we saw Ecto-1, it was driving back to Manhattan, the home of Ghostbusters. And that's where our story begins. The code name is Firehouse. The film is currently being written and Gil uh, joking that they need to finish it and finish it quick. All right. That is all the news that was done by Ectofest, but or from Ectofest, I should say. But we got one more piece of Ghostbusters news, and as they say, you always save the best for last. And this one is definitely the best. A few months ago, everybody in the Ghostbusting community 
was introduced to a little boy by the name of George. And George's dream was to be a Ghostbuster. George is uh, living with cancer. And a Ghostbusters team in England worked with a special wish to try to do everything that they could to make this boy's dream come true. Including Dr. Raymond Stance. Hello, George. This is Ray Stance. I'd like you to put up your right hand now as I swear you in as cadet supervisor for the East Midlands, UK district. George, will you? Yes. Solemnly swear. Yes. Say, I do swear. I do swear. To uphold the code of the Ghostbusters cadets organization worldwide. To serve everyone with compassion and kindness and to trap and report ghosts wherever they are bothering living human beings in a negative fashion. Thank you. You're sworn in, sir. Oh my god. <laughs> this is the best And if anybody out there would like to help contribute to George's dream, you saw the website there. What's going on, Dave? Uh, Makeawishu.org slash UK slash George. That video was probably the most touching thing that we got out of Ghostbusters Day. Um, The Northeast Ohio Ghostbusters have also contributed to George's wish. And this Sunday, George gets to spend the entire day with the East Midland Ghostbusters busting ghosts all over the UK. Huge shout out to the East Midland Ghostbusters and Ghost Corp for making that moment possible with uh, Dan Aykroyd swearing George in. I'm fighting back tears. That's the reason why we do what we do when we're Ghostbusters. But that's going to do it for Ghostbusters news. Hopefully you guys enjoyed all of those updates that we got from EctoFest this year. Uh, there were a couple little more little things. If you guys want more information on what happened during EctoFest, go ahead and check out my preview show that I put out this morning. You can go to podpage.com forward slash monies dash crazy dash mind, and you can find it there. Or you can find the podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts. It's all over the place. Um, and more on that later on here in the show. But let's dive literally into our main story for the week. I've been teasing it for two weeks here. And I got to tell you, this is probably the the deepest and most involved story I have ever done in the history of money's crazy mind. And uh, I just got to say, this one is definitely not for the faint of heart. This one is not going to be an easy one to get through. So if you got young kids that are watching right now, Get them out of the room. That's all I got to say. So like I said, I've been teasing for two weeks the story about a man who walks into a McDonald's in 1984 in San Diego, California, and what follows is 77 minutes of pure terror. Given some of the current events in our country recently, I couldn't think of a better time to tell this story than right now and to maybe help put a little bit of perspective into what could possibly be going on in the minds of some of these horrendous perpetrators. The San Ysidro McDonald's massacre 
was an act of mass murder which occurred at a McDonald's restaurant in the San Jacinto area of San Diego, California, on July 18, 1984. 41-year-old George or James Huberty fatally shot 21 people, wounded 19 others, before being killed by a police sniper, sniper 77 minutes after he fired his first shot. At the time, the massacre was the deadliest mass shooting by a lone gunman in U.S. history, being surpassed seven years later by the Lubby shootings. So prior to the incident, on July 15th, Huberty commented to his wife, Erica, or I'm sorry, Etna, that he suspected he had a mental health issue. Two days later, on the morning of July 17th, he called the San Diego Mental Health Clinic, requesting an appointment. Leaving his contact details with the receptionist, Huberty was assured the clinic would return his call within hours. According to his wife, he sat quietly beside the telephone for several hours, waiting for that return call, before abruptly walking out of the family home and riding to an unknown destination on his motorcycle. Unbeknownst to Huberty, the reception, the receptionist misspelled his name as Schauberty, and his polite demeanor conveyed no sense of urgency to the operator, and he had elaborated in the phone call that he had never been hospitalized for a mental health issue. Therefore, the call had been logged as a non-crisis inquiry and to be handled within 48 hours. Failure number one for James Huberty was the fact that the people at this mental health clinic didn't see his issue as being a priority. And to me, I think that's strike one as to why the events at this McDonald's happened. More on that. One hour later, Huberty returned home in a contented mood. After eating dinner, Huberty, his wife, and their two daughters cycled to a nearby park. Later that evening, he and Etna watched a movie together on their TV. The next day, July 18th, uh, Huberty, his wife, and his children visited the San Diego Zoo. In the course of their walk through the zoo, Huberty told his wife of his belief that his life was effectively over. Referring to the mental health clinic's failure to return his phone call the previous day. He said, well, society had their chance. After eating lunch at a McDonald's uh, in the Claremont neighborhood of San Diego, the family returned home. Shortly thereafter, Huberty walked into his bedroom wearing a maroon t-shirt, green camouflage slacks, as his wife lay relaxing upon their bed, he leaned toward Etna and said, I want to kiss you goodbye. Etna kissed her husband, then asked him where he was going, stating her intentions to soon prepare dinner. Huberty calmly replied, going hunting, hunting for humans.
holding a gun across his shoulder and carrying a box of ammunition and a bundle wrapped in a checkered blanket. Huberty glanced towards his elder daughter, Zelia, as he walked toward the front door of the family home and said, Goodbye. I won't be back. Huberty then drove down San Ysidro Boulevard. According to eyewitnesses, he drove first toward a Big Bear supermarket, then toward a U.S. post office before entering the parking lot of the McDonald's approximately 200 yards from his apartment. And here's where we get into the nit and grit of this thing. There are, like, like you know, I read in the, in the intro, there were 21 victims. I don't want to glance over this, but I do want to talk about a couple of the things that happened in the first part of this before we deep dive into these murders. And I see that people are dropping off the stream left and right. If there's something going on with the stream, if it keeps crashing or something like that, let me know, guys, so I can fix it. I can't fix it if I don't know that there's a problem. I say that every day. Um, if not, you know, I mean, I had permission to use that music. I put the, the licenses in the, in the, uh, in the description. So if it's something isn't working, just let me know guys. Let me know. All right. So a couple of things, like, like I said, it happened here before he walks into this McDonald's and starts doing what he's, what he does. Um, you know, so we mentioned that he did try to reach out to a mental health clinic for help. And this was two days previous to the event. And the receptionist pretty much ignored him, saying this doesn't seem like a life-threatening issue or anything like that, so we got 48 hours to get back to him. That, to me, is a failure by the mental health clinic and that they're, they're... situation or the way that they handle calls is just awful. If somebody is reaching out to you for help, they should be the first on the list because they're obviously reaching out to you for a reason. This tragedy probably would have been avoided completely had somebody at that mental health clinic reached out to him and gave him the help he needed. We mentioned Incredible Keepsakes earlier. They made this awesome Redline Radio Cup. It's got my name etched into the back. That was a gift from Dave um, last Christmas, and thank you for that, by the way, Dave. <clears throat> so, you know, he, he left. He went somewhere. He came back content. So I'm sure, you know, his family figured that, you know, whatever he was going through, he might have gotten over. But who knows where he went? You know, I mean, we don't know anything about where he went. We can't ask him. Um, you know, but then they went through a, a bike ride in the park, and then he watched a, a movie with his with his wife. The following morning, you know, they went to the to the San Diego Zoo. You know, and but he he's telling his wife that his life was effectively over. So by this point, he knew what he was going to do, and he knew where it was going to happen and how it was going to happen. And, you know, to me, that's the saddest part about the whole thing is, like, you know, if somebody had picked up that phone the day before, this wouldn't have happened. I do find it ironic that they went to McDonald's for lunch 
But, you know, the things that he was saying, you know, here, you know, his life's effectively over. He referred to the mental health clinic's failure to return his call. So, I mean, obviously he was affected by that, and he did take that personally, that they never returned his phone call. And he said society had their chance. So that's exactly what he was trying to do. He was trying to have somebody reach out to him for help. He wanted somebody to reach out to him for help, I should say. And they didn't. They ignored him. Um, But like I said, I do find it ironic that they went to McDonald's for lunch. uh, But then they went home. And... um, you know, he changed his clothes. He put on a marine T-shirt and green camouflage pants, kissed his wife goodbye, and then he even told his wife, "I'm going hunting, hunting for humans." Now, I do have a problem with this. At this point, Etna Huberty is just as guilty as her husband is for what happened at that McDonald's. She could have reached out to law enforcement and said, my husband just said something to me that that has me very worried that he's going to do something stupid. And she didn't. She allowed him to make that statement and leave the house carrying guns, ammunitions, and a bundle wrapped up. So to me, Aetna didn't do anything to help this situation. She allowed 21 people to die and 19 other people to get hurt because she did nothing to, A, stop her husband, which, I mean, she might have been a little bit afraid of him. You know, he he was walking around with, with an assault rifle, as we found out. But, B, she didn't call the authorities and been like, hey, my husband just left the house with an assault rifle. It's not going to be that hard to find the guy walking down the street with a fucking assault rifle. Hello, anybody home? Think, McFly, think. So I do blame her for a little bit about what happened during this whole thing. Wow, the mic sounds better now that I tapped on it. <laughs> cool. You know, and then he uh, he kisses his, his oldest daughter and says, you know, uh, goodbye, I won't be back. So, you know, by that point, you know bad things are going to happen and they're going to be done by Mr. Huberty here. Let, let's, let's, uh. Let's leave the padded room here and let's head on over to Nurse Ratchet's office. Um, you know, but he drove down the street 200 yards, 200 yards. He did not even live that far from the McDonald's that he was going to shoot up. So he walked into the McDonald's at 356 uh, and drove his black Mercury Marquis sedan into the parking lot. In his possession were a 9mm Browning HP semi-automatic pistol, a 9mm Uzi carbine, Winchester uh, 1200 12-gauge pump-action shotgun, a box, and a cloth bag filled with hundreds of rounds of ammunition for each weapon. A total of uh, 45 customers were present inside the restaurant. So do the math there. 21 people died, 19 people got hurt. He got just about everybody that was in that restaurant, plus a few others, and we'll get into that. Entering the restaurant minutes later, Huberty first aimed his shotgun at a 16-year-old employee named John Arnold from a distance of approximately 15 feet. As he did so, the assistant manager, Guillermo Flores, shouted, Hey, John, that guy's going to shoot you. 
According to Arnold, when Huberty pulled the trigger, nothing happened. As Huberty inspected his gun, the manager of the restaurant, 22-year-old Neva Kane, walked toward the service counter of the restaurant in the direction of Arnold as Arnold, believing the incident to be a distasteful joke, began to walk away from the gunman. Huberty fired his shotgun toward the ceiling before aiming the Uzi at Kane, shooting her once beneath her left eye. She died minutes later. Immediately after shooting Kane, Huberty fired his shotgun at Arnold, wounding the teenager in the chest and arm before shouting a comment to the effect of everyone on the ground. Huberty then referred to all present inside the restaurant as dirty swine and Vietnam assholes before claiming that, claiming that he had killed a thousand and that he intended to kill a thousand more. Upon hearing Huberty's profane rant and seeing Kane and Arnold shoot or shot, one customer, 25-year-old Victor Riviera, tried to persuade Huberty not to shoot anyone else. In response, Huberty shot Rivera 14 times, repeatedly shouting, Shut up, as Riviera screamed in pain. Staff and customers tried to hide beneath tables and service booths. Huberty turned his attention towards six women and children huddled together. He first killed 19-year-old Maria. Uh, I'm going to butcher these names. I'm sorry. Maria Colmanera Silva with a single gunshot to the chest, then fatally shot nine-year-old Claudia Perez in the stomach. Cheek, thigh, hip, leg, back, armpit, and head with his Uzi. Wounded Perez's 15-year-old sister, Imelda, once in the hand with the same weapon and fired upon 11-year-old Aurora Pena with his shotgun. Pena, initially wounded in the leg, she had been shielded by her pregnant aunt, 18-year-old Jackie Reyes. Huberty shot Reyes 48 times with his Uzi besides his mother's body. Eight-month-old Carlos Reyes sat up and wailed whereupon Huberty shouted at the child, then killed the toddler with a single pistol shot to the center of the back. It didn't matter who was in the restaurant to Huberty. They were all just collateral damage. Normally I don't name victims, but um, all this information is coming from a documentary called 77 Minutes. It's available to watch for free on Freevee by IMDb. And, um, you know, they went into a lot of gory detail in this. I'm probably going to skip through a lot of this just because it's it's even hard for me to read. Um, And I have a feeling that Facebook is probably going to have a cow if I continue talking the way I'm talking. Um, but this documentary, they even showed pictures, um, pictures of a lot of the people that, uh, lost their lives this day in the restaurant. Um, I am going to go through, um, some of this here though. Uh, you know, I'll just try to stay away from some of the more graphic ones, um, 
Excuse me a second. Just making sure we're still alive here because, you know, this content can and is violent. So, <clears throat> uh, he shot and killed a 62-year-old trucker named Lawrence uh, Verlusius before targeting a family seated near the play area of the restaurant who had tried to shield their son and his friend beneath the tables with their bodies. 31-year-old Blythe Regan Herrera had shielded her 11-year-old son, Mateo, beneath one booth as her husband, Ronald, protected Mateo's friend, 12-year-old Keith Thomas, beneath a booth directly across from them. Ronald Herrera urged Thomas not to move, shielding the boy with his body. Thomas was shot in the shoulder, arm, wrist, and left elbow, but was not seriously wounded. Ronald Herrera was shot six times in the stomach, chest, elbow, or uh, arm, hip, and shoulder, and head, but survived. His wife and son were both killed by numerous gunshots to the head. Nearby, three women had also attempted to hide beneath a booth. Um, 24-year-old Guadalupe Del Rio lay against a wall. She was shielded by her friends, 25-year-old Gloria Ramirez and 31-year-old Aris Delzi. And that's, that's as far as I'm going with that. Del Rio was hit several times, um, but was not seriously wounded. Ramirez was unhurt, whereas Vargas was the that A, a name, last name, received a single gunshot wound to the back of the head. She died of her wound the next day. The only person fatally wounded who lived long enough to reach a hospital. At another booth, uh, 45-year-old banker Hugo Velasquez Vasquez uh, with a single shotgun to the chest lost his life. Uh, the first of many calls to emergency services was made shortly after 4 p.m. Notifying police of the shooting of a child who had been taken to a post office on San Ysidro Boulevard, the dispatcher mistakenly directed responding officers to another McDonald's two miles from the restaurant that they were at. This error delayed the imposition of a lockdown by several minutes, and the only warning to civilians walking, riding, or driving toward the restaurant were given by passersby. Shortly after 4 p.m., a young woman named Lydia Flores drove into the parking lot, stopping at the fast food pickup window. Flores noticed shattered windows and the sound of gunfire before looking up, and there he was just shooting. Flores reversed her car until she crashed into a fence. She hid in some bushes with her two-year-old daughter until the shooting ended. Okay, strike two right here. Police dispatch sent the people that would be helping everybody to the wrong McDonald's. So, basically, you cost a lot more people their lives. Because you gave your respondent officers the wrong 
information, sending them to the wrong McDonald's. Therefore, this guy's sitting there opening fire like he's the fucking Terminator looking for Sarah Connor. Four oh five PM a Mexican couple couple drove towards one of the service areas of the restaurant, noting the shattered laminated glass. Um they initially assumed renovation work was in progress and that Huberty striding towards the car was a repairman. Huberty fired his shotgun and Uzi at the couple and their four month old daughter, striking uh the mother in the face, arm and chest blinding her in one eye and permanently rendering one hand unusable. Her baby was critically injured in the neck, chest, and abdomen. The man uh, was wounded in the chest and hand. Um, As the couple staggered away from Huberty's line of fire, uh, the woman gave their baby to her husband. He handed the shrieking child to a young woman, uh, as his wife collapsed against the car, the woman rushed the baby to a nearby hospital as her husband assisted the couple into a nearby building. All three members of the family survived. Three 11 year old boys rode their bike into the West parking lot to purchase Sundays. Hearing a member of the public yell something unintelligible from across the street, all three hesitated before Huberty shot the boys with his shotgun and Uzi. Joshua Coleman fell to the ground, critically wounded in the back, arm, and leg. He later recalled looking toward his two friends, Omar and David, noting that Omar was on the ground with multiple gunshot wounds in his back and started vomiting. David had received several gunshot wounds to his head. Coleman survived. David and Omar both died at the scene. Huberty noticed an elderly couple walking toward the entrance. As the male reached the door, uh, reached to open the door for his wife, Huberty fired a shotgun, killing her with a gunshot wound to the face, and he also wounded him. An uninjured survivor later reported observing Miguel cradling his wife in his arms wiping blood from her face, shouting curses at Huberty, who then approached the doorway, swore at him, and killed him with a shot to the head. So now, the now we're getting somewhere. Now, mind you, 77 minutes of this goes on. We're at 10. Let that sink in a little bit. Ten minutes after the first call had been placed to emergency services, police arrived at the correct McDonald's restaurant. The first officer on the scene, Miguel Rosario, rapidly determined the location and cause of the actual disturbance and relayed this information to the San Diego Police Department as Huberty fired at the patrol car. Officers deployed immediately, imposing a lockdown on an area spanning six blocks from the site of the shooting. The police established a command post two blocks from the restaurant and deployed 175 officers in numerous strategic positions. These officers were joined within an hour by several SWAT team members who also took positions around the restaurant. As Huberty was firing rapidly, 
and alternating and alternating between firearms. Police initially were unaware how many individuals were inside the restaurant. Furthermore, because most of the restaurant's windows had been shattered by gunfire, reflections from shards of glass provided an additional difficulty for police focusing inside the restaurant. Initially, police were concerned the gunman or gunmen would be holding hostages, although one individual who had escaped from the restaurant informed police there was a single gunman present in the premises holding no hostages and shooting any individual he encountered. At 5.05, all responding law enforcement personnel were authorized to kill the perpetrator should they obtain a clear Shot. All right. Here's what I'm going to say about this. Several things don't make sense in a lot of what was being said here. So between him changing firearms, the police said that they were unable to determine how many individuals were inside the restaurant. And because the restaurant's windows had been shattered by gunfire, reflections from shards of glass. I don't know about that provided an additional difficulty to folk for focusing inside the restaurant. Then move the fucking binoculars down about three inches and put it through the big gaping hole that's in the window. Then you'll be able to see what the heck is going on. Not only that, but you had somebody that came up to you and said, one guy, it's one guy, and he's killing everybody, man. You have a shoot-to-kill order. Open fire! Am I wrong for saying that? That would have ended this whole thing in about 15 minutes. Several survivors later reported observing Huberty walk toward the service counter and adjust his portable radio, possibly to search for news reports of his shooting spree, before selecting a music station and further shooting individuals as he danced to the music. Shortly thereafter, Huberty searched the kitchen area, discovering six employees in and shouting, Oh, there's more. You're trying to hide from me. In response, one of the female's employees screamed in Spanish, Don't kill me. Don't kill me. Before he opened fire, killing 21-year-old Paulina Lopez, 19-year-old Elsa Borboa Fierro, and 18-year-old Margarita Padilla, and critically wounding 17-year-old Albert Leos. Immediately before Huberty had begun shooting, Padilla grabbed the hand of her friend and colleague, 17-year-old Wendy Flanagan, before the two began to run. Padilla was then fatally shot. Flanagan, four other employees, and a female customer hid inside a basement utility room. They were later joined by Leos, who had crawled to the utility room after being shot five times. When a fire truck drove within range, Huberty opened fire and repeatedly pierced the vehicle with bullets, slightly wounding one occupant, hearing a wounded teenager, 19-year-old Jose Perez, moaning. Huberty shot him in the head. The boy slumped dead in the booth. Perez died along his friend and neighbor, 22-year-old Gloria Gonzalez, and a young woman named Michelle Carncross. At one point, Aurora Pena, who had lain wounded beside her dead aunt, 
baby cousin, and two friends noted a lull in the firing. Opening her eyes, she saw Huberty nearby, staring in her direction. He swore and threw a bag of french fries at Penna, then retrieved his shotgun and shot the child in the arm, neck, and jaw. Aurora Penna survived, although she would remain hospitalized longer than any other survivor. We have reached the end of the killing inside this McDonald's. So with that, we're going to go to break here for a little bit. When we come back, we're going to talk about what happened at the end of the incident and everything that followed. And um, more about the life of the man who caused this. And maybe we can try to put a reason into why this all happened. Um, Just to finish up kind of what we were talking about here. um, As you can see, there was nothing about police action after they just arrived. Um, You know, he was able to get a few more victims. And as the one survivor stated, he went back and tried getting victims that were still left alive. He wanted no nobody living in that restaurant. And remember, before he even left to go on this killing spree, he told his wife, I'm about to go kill a bunch of people. And his wife did nothing. So with that, we're going to take a break here on Money's Crazy Mind. When we come back, we'll talk about the end of the incident and uh, some things that led, that I think led to this incident happening, and then some things that happened after the incident, and then we'll wrap it up with a final thought. Until then, we'll be right back here on Money's Crazy Mind. Nobody can touch you now. I'm your man. Jesus Christ couldn't touch you, because I represent you, so... Keep your nose clean, be a good owner, follow the rules, and who knows, maybe one day when they open the books, you get straightened up. Become a wise guy, a man guy. Come on, lift your glass. We mob like family, like family, we mob like family, like family, we mob like family, like family, we mob, we mob, we mob, we mob. The world is mine, so fuck the rest. Yeah, fuck it with me, yeah, fuck it with the best. I'm untouchable like other pups, leaving motherfuckers mind bumps. So I'm from the bottom and get to the top. Don't give a fuck about a bitch ass cop. Sonny Black brought you in and said you were down. Now you're breaking bread, talking family now. Got the call last night. Things didn't go right. Had a pull rank, had a call, Mr. White. He said, Blind started freaking, Pink started drinking. Got me thinking of what to do. There's a rat in a family, and I think it's you. So we rally up the crew, and we ready to ride. We mob like family, and you die tonight. When I say mob like y'all say family, we mob like family, we mob like family. When I say we mob like y'all say family, we mob like family, we mob like family, we mob like family. Like family, we mob like family. Like family, we mob like family. 
Redline Radio is proud to partner with Growing Wings Adult Services, the proud sponsor of our state-of-the-art production studio. The team at Growing Wings has over seven years' experience of helping adults with disabilities in the Northeast Ohio area. If Lisa Summers and the team at Growing Wings can help your family, contact them at 234-334-7547 today. And mention that you heard all about Growing Wings right here on Redline Radio, LLC. Uh, the Northeast Ohio Ghostbusters. Hello, Northeast Ohio Ghostbusters. What are you wearing? Uh... Khakis? Well, that sounds hideous. Well, they're Ghostbusters. All right, just a fun little quip there from my boys over in the Northeast Ohio Ghostbusters. I found that video, and I just had to share it with everybody. Let's get me back on the screen here. I decided to go outside. It's a nice day here at the asylum. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to Money's Crazy Mines again. And as always, a huge shout-out to Psych Ward for Mob-Like Family. And a huge shout-out to Lisa Summers and everything that she has done, not only for Redline Radio, but for everything that she does for everybody each and every day with Growing Wings Adult Services. And I also want to give a huge shout-out to Pit Road Diecast. Bill Rabbits and the team over at Pit Road Diecast are your one-stop shop for all your NASCAR diecast needs. Call Bill today at 216-355-2347. Mention Redlines Radio. Mention me. Mention Money's Crazy Mind. Get 10% off your in-store purchase. All right. So at the end of the incident, which occurred at 5.17 p.m., let me just go back here in my notes real quick. The shooting started at 3.56, so we are almost two hours after the first shot was fired. 
77 minutes to be exact. Uh, Huberty walked from the service counter toward the doorway close to the drive through window of the restaurant, affording a 27-year-old SWAT sniper a deployed uh, to a strategic position on the roof of the post office directly opposite the restaurant, an unobstructed view of his body from the neck down through his telescopic sight. Foster fired a single round from a range of approximately 35 yards. The bullet entered Huberty's chest, severed his aorta just beneath his heart, and exited through his spine, leaving an exit wound one inch square and sending Huberty sprawling backwards onto the floor directly in front of the service counter, killing him almost instantly. Immediately after shooting Huberty, Foster relayed to other responding officers that he had killed the perpetrator and that his focus remained on the motionless suspect. Nonetheless, as so many rounds had been expanded from different firearms within the restaurant, police were not completely certain that the sole perpetrator was deceased. Entering the restaurant approximately one minute later, a police sergeant focused his gun upon Huberty as he noted movements from a wounded girl. When asked if the deceased male was the suspect, the girl nodded her head. The entire incident lasted 77 minutes, during which time Huberty fired a minimum of 257 rounds of ammunition, killing 20 people and wounding many others, one of whom was pronounced brain dead upon arrival at, at a hospital and died the following day. 17 of the victims were killed inside of the restaurant and four in the immediate vicinity. Only 10 individuals inside the restaurant were uninjured, six of whom had hidden inside the basement utility room. Several victims had tried to stanch their own wounds and or the wounds of other companions with napkins, often in vain. Of the fatalities, 13 died from gunshot wounds to the head, seven from gunshots to the chest, and one victim <clears throat> this, is, this is tough to read. Eight-month-old Carlos Reyes from a single 9mm gunshot wound to the back. The victims who ranged from ages four months to 74 years were predominantly, though not exclusively, Mexican or Mexican-American ancestry, reflecting local demographics. Prior to shooting several of his victims, Huberty had shouted accusations or insults. On one occasion, he had also shouted that he himself did not deserve to live, but that he was taking care of this matter. Although Huberty had repeatedly shouted throughout his shooting spree that he had been a veteran of the Vietnam War. He had never actually served in any military branch. Now, that part to me is interesting. Um, I don't remember if they talked about that on the documentary or not, Um, but this is not the first time that I've heard of somebody exaggerating or even completely fabricating some kind of military service when it came to them doing something wicked. Michael Peterson, the author, who was convicted of killing his wife, uh, Kathleen, 
um, had also said that he had received a Purple Heart and was a veteran of the Vietnam War. When it turns out, he did not. He does, however, have a Bronze and Silver Star, but he earned those after Vietnam when somebody in his uh, company had died from an IUD. Or IED, I'm sorry. Initial reports issued by the San Diego Police Department following the massacre indicated that everyone injured or killed within the restaurant had been shot by Huberty in the initial minutes after he had first entered the restaurant. This claim was hotly disputed by survivors who stated that Huberty had shot both wounded and unwounded people over 40 minutes after he first opened fire. Now, that is a very important thing that I want to touch on real quick. The police were trying to do whatever they could to try to make themselves look better in this situation than they actually were. It took them almost 15 minutes to respond to this. And then they allowed everything that happened in there to go on for an additional 62 minutes. And their claim that they weren't aware, were, were not sure if there was one perpetrator or multiple perpetrators due to the different kinds of guns being used. They had an eyewitness that told them it was one guy who was changing weapons. And I'm pretty sure that when they started questioning survivors, be it either the day of or the following days, a lot of them were probably sitting there saying, dude, never stop shooting us. Meanwhile, you guys are sitting there in the post office in the Dunkin' Donuts and the Dairy Queen picking your asses while we're getting bullets flung at us by four different weapons that this guy had. Now, they were trying to say that they wanted to make sure that the situation was safe for them to be able to enter. Well, here's an idea. You see a guy with a fucking gun in his hand, if somebody, even if it's not a clear shot, nobody else in that restaurant was moving. Or if they were, they were on the ground trying to get away from the bullets. At that point, shoot to kill. You had a shoot to kill order 15 minutes after this situation started, but yet you still decided to sit there for an additional 62 minutes until a sniper that was on the roof of the post office right across the street had an open shot. That, to me, is the most asinine and the one thing that has me sitting here going, what the fuck, out of this whole situation. They had multiple opportunities to take this guy out, and they decided to wait until he was standing in a shot-out window over by the drive-thru. And because of that, 21 people lost their life. 19 more were injured. The youngest victim was four months old. I don't need to tell you that while me and my wife were watching that documentary when we were watching it, Both of us got sick to our stomach when that statistic came up.
so let's talk about some of the other things that the perpetrator, James Huberty, had going on in his life prior to this horrendous event that happened at a McDonald's. And the crazy thing is, and I mean, I was born in 1984, but I wasn't even born yet. And my wife was just a few months old when this happened. But it, it was absolutely sickening. You know, and we were just, try- we were bored, you know, one night. And we're just like, you know, let's find something to watch. Both of us just narrowed in on this because the picture on, on that, that you saw on the free V, um, and the free V page was a picture of a McDonald's and people crying and go figure the very next movie that they show is the, is the, uh, Kevin Costner. Is it Kevin Costner? Or Michael Keaton movie. Um, the founder, which is about the man who started McDonald's the way everybody knows it today, Ray Kroc, or as I affectionately refer to the man, Ray Crook. Um, that's another story for another time. We obviously we had no idea what we were getting into when we started this thing. Um, and by the time it was over, you know, neither one of us were just like, you know, we were just, I'm done. Like, I, I don't want to hear anything else about this for a very long time. Um, sadly, you know, when I planned to do this, um, I, I'd had this on the books for a couple of weeks. Um, you know, we had that school shooting down in Texas, and, you know, I don't want people to think that this was just an ill, uh, this was purposely done this way. This topic has been on the books for a few weeks. Um, but I, I just felt that with everything that that has gone on with Texas and, you know, uh, uh, Sugar and Spice on their show talking about mass shootings, um, United Unite for Change, I'm sorry, they changed their name, um, talking about, resources for parents to try to help their kids understand what to do in these kind of situations. Uh, earlier today, talking about that, um, I just, I said, you know what, fuck it. I'm just going to go on and continue to do the topic and, and talk about it because the information that I'm about to dive into is definitely the, the bulk of the information that I want to get to because I think it helps kind of explain why this unfortunate incident happened on top of the fact that he was reaching out for mental help and he did not get it. Uh, He was born in Canton, Ohio, second of two children born. Um, His father was a quality inspector, his wife a homemaker. Both parents were devoutly religious and the family were regular attendees of the local Methodist church. Who else do we know that's a notorious scumbag that's from Canton? When Huberty was three years old, he con- he contracted polio. To minimize the debilitate the debility of this element, he was required to wear steel and leather braces upon both legs. Although Huberty made a progressive recovery from this ailment, he, he would be affected with a mild limp for the remainder of his life. In 1950, he purchased a 155-acre farm in Mount Eaton. Uh, his father purchased a 155-acre farm 
His mother refused to live in a rural location and refused to even view the property. Uh, the mother abandoned her family to perform sidewalk preaching as a Pentecostal ministry uh, missionary, I'm sorry, in Tucson, Arizona. Um, he found that his mother's abandonment emotionally devastating. His father would later recollect finding his son slumped against the family chicken coop, sobbing. Uh, he was a sullen child with few friends whose primary interest was target practice. Family acquaintance would later describe him as a queer little boy who practiced uh, incessantly with a target pistol. By the time he had teens, he was something of an amateur gunsmith. Due to his limp, his family's extreme religious beliefs, and his reluctance to socialize with his peers, Huberty was frequently targeted by bullies at Wayndale High School. He was average in school, graduated 51st out of a class of 77 in 1960. In 62, he enrolled at Malone College, where he initially studied sociology before opting to study at, at the Pittsburgh Institute of Mortuary Science, obviously in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Graduated with honors from this institute in 64, being issued with a funeral director's license and the following year an embalmer's license. In 65, he married his wife, Etna, whom he met while attending Malone College. Shortly after his marriage, Huberty attained deployment at a funeral home in Canton. Although proficient in embalming, Huberty's introverted personality made him ill-suited to dealing with members of the public, causing minor conflicts with his supervisors. Nonetheless, Huberty worked in the profession for two years before opting to become a welder for a firm in Louisville, Kentucky. He worked for this firm for two years before securing a better paying position at Babcock and Wilcox in 69. Although reclusive and taciturn, Huberty's employers considered him a reliable worker, willingly took overtime, earned promotions, and by the mid-70s regularly earned between twenty-five and 30000 a year, which would be more like one hundred twenty-one to 145000 adjusted for inflation for the year 2021. Shortly after that, Huberty was hired by his firm and his wife moved into a three-story home in an affluent section of Massillon, Ohio. In the winter of 71, the home was destroyed in a fire. Shortly thereafter, uh, they bought another house on the same street, later built a six-unit apartment building on the grounds of their first home, which they managed. Their daughters, Zelia and Cassandra, were born in 72 and 74. Uh, here's where some of the tumultuous history of uh, James Huberty starts coming into play. Uh, Huberty had a history of domestic violence, frequently slapping or punching his daughters, holding knives to their throats, or beating his wife. On one occasion, Aetna filed a report with the Canton Police Department and the Department of Child and Family Services, stating that her husband had messed up her jaw, although she later insisted on the majority of occasions he had assaulted her. He struck her only once. Beginning in 76, Aetna repeatedly attempted to persuade her husband to seek counseling to alleviate his sources of stress, 
although he refused to seek any form of therapy in professional efforts to pacify her husband's temper, anxiety, and general paranoia, and to both influence and control his behavior. She took great effort, uh, great efforts to minimize any possibility of agitating her husband. I thought I was going to repeat a sentence. Uh, she also gradually developed a, a mechanism whereby she claimed to be able to read his future by reading and playing tarot cards. Huberty believed her. Edna's readings would produce a temporary calming effect, and Huberty would typically follow the recommendations of his wife made during these readings. To his neighbors and co-workers, Huberty was perceived as sullen, ill-tempered, and somewhat paranoid individual, obsessed with firearms, and who harbored a mental tally of every setback, insult, or general source of frustration, real or perceived, against himself or his family within his mind. Occasionally, Huberty would retaliate in response to any real or perceived injustice in an effort to settle what he termed my debts, and conflicts with his neighbors would once lead to a detainment on charges of disorderly conduct. On one occasion, he's known to have informed the father of two girls whom he had encouraged his daughters to fight in response to a conflict between the children, I believe in paying my debts, both good and bad. So there you go. You know, uh, he has a history of beating his wife, beating his children, um, and he's a little bit of a wackadoo, you know, and um, a little bit of a paranoid, you know, had a little bit of paranoia. It also seemed to me, just reading some of this, that he may have a dual personality disorder or maybe even a multiple personality disorder or some level of schizophrenia. Um, he was considered a conspiracy theorist and self-proclaimed survivalist. He believed an escalation of the Cold War was inevitable and that Jimmy Carter and later Reagan and the United States government were conspiring against him. Convinced of an imminent increase in Soviet aggression, Huberty believed that a breakdown of society was fast approaching, perhaps through economic collapse or nuclear war. He committed himself to prepare to survive this perceived collapse and provisioned his house with ample reserves and supplies of non-perishable food and numerous guns, some purchased from co-workers, that he intended to use to defend his home during what he believed was the coming apocalypse. According to one family acquaintance, Jim Aslin's, Huberty's home was uh, bedecked with loaded firearms to such a degree that wherever Huberty was sitting or standing within his home, he could reach over and get a gun. Each firearm was loaded with the safety catch disabled. Yeah. This is a good guy. Uh, unemployment and relocation to Tijuana. In November of 82, Huberty was laid off from his welding job at Babcock and Wilcox, causing him to become despondent over his dire financial situation and general inability to provide for his family. One co-worker would later recollect that upon being notified of his, the impending closure of his engineering firm, he made a commitment to indicating that if he was unable to provide for his family, he intended to commit suicide and take everyone with him. 
According to his wife, shortly after her husband became unemployed, Huberty began hearing voices. In early 83, he placed a loaded pistol against his temple, threatening to commit suicide. She successfully dissuaded her husband from shooting himself, although he later remarked to her, you should have let me shoot myself. Unable to find employment in Ohio, uh, the family sold their six-unit apartment building for $115,000 in the spring of 83. Shortly thereafter, Huberty obtained an alternate welding employment with Union Metal Manufacturing Company. This employment lasted five weeks before the closure of the plant. Weeks after he became unemployed, uh, he took one of his daughters. Uh, Huberty and one of his daughters were injured in a traffic accident. In the weeks following this accident, Huberty noticed an aggravation in neck pains he had endured since childhood. He also noted an occasional increasing nerve tremor in his hands and arms. That summer, the Huberties applied for residency in Mexico, believing the money obtained from the sale of their apartment building would financially sustain the family longer in Mexico than in America. Having also sold their home for $12,000 in cash in September, the buyer assuming their $48,000 mortgage, Huberty informed the family acquaintances of his intentions to relocate the family to Tijuana in search for employment opportunities, confidently stating, we're going to show them who's boss. The family moved from Ohio to Tijuana in October of 83, left all but the most essential of his family's possessions in a storage unit in Ohio, but ensured he bought, brought his huge collection of guns, ammunition, and survival supplies with him because, you know, bare necessities and all. According to published reports, Huberty's wife and daughters embraced their new environs and became friendly with their neighbors, although Huberty, who spoke little Spanish, was sullen and taciturn. Unable to find employment in Tijuana, Huberty quickly regretted his decision to relocate to Mexico. Within three months, the family relocated to San Ysardo in largely poor district of San Diego, just north of the U.S.-Mexico border. In 1984, had a population of 13,000. In San Ysardo, the Huberties rented an apartment within the Cottonwood Apartments as Huberties sought employment. The fact his family were the only Anglo-Americans within this apartment uh, irritated Huberty. It was notably arrogant to his neighbors. Shortly thereafter, Huberty applied to a newspaper advertisement offering security guard training in a federal-funded program. He completed the course on April 12th and soon obtained employment with a security firm in the Chula Vista, in Chula Vista, assigned with guarding in a condominium complex. The money earned enabled the family to have their furniture shipped from Ohio, and the family relocated to a two-bedroom apartment on Averill Road in the same month. The monthly rent for the apartment was $450. July 10th. Uh, Huberty was summarily dismissed from the job. His employers informed Huberty that the reasons for the dismissal were his poor work performance and a noted general physically instability. In the aftermath of the McDonald's massacre, reporters visited James Huberty's father in Mount Eaton to garner further information about his son. Having discussed his son's childhood and the family's religious background, Earl Huberty pointed to a painting of a lost sheep by the uh, River Jordan 
before beginning to weep. Informing reporters yesterday was the worst day of my life. I feel sorry for those people. McDonald's temporarily suspended all television and radio advertisements in the day following the massacre. In an act of solidarity, arch-rival fast food chain Burger King also suspended all forms of advertisement. Huberty's body was cremated on July 23rd. No official religious service were observed throughout the act. His ashes were returned to his widow and later interned in his home state of Ohio. In the weeks following the massacre, Huberty's wife and daughters received numerous death threats, forcing them to temporarily reside with a family friend. All three would attend counseling sessions for over nine months. Uh, his wife and daughters were initially relocated from San Ysidro to Chula Vista, where the daughters enrolled in school under assumed names. One year later, the family moved to the community of Spring Valley. Because of the sheer number of victims, local funeral homes had to use the Civic Center to hold wakes for each victim. The local parish, Mount Carmel Church, were forced to back-to-back funeral masses in order to in order that each of the dead could be buried in a timely manner. Several police officers who responded to the scene of the of the massacre suffered symptoms including sleep withdrawal, loss of memory and guilt in the months following the incident. A study commissioned by the National Institute of Mental Health and conducted by the chief psychologist of the San San Diego Police Department in 85 concluded several officers suffered post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of the incident. The McDonald's massacre prompted the city of San Diego to assess the tactical methods by which the responding, uh, from which they responded to incidents of this nature and the firearms in the possession of the responding officers. The police department increased training for special units and purchased more powerful firearms in order to better equip law enforcement to respond to scenarios of this magnitude. According to one officer who confessed to having felt inadequate because he had been equipped with a 38 caliber revolver the day of the massacre, the time had come where you have to have a full-time, committed, and dedicated, highly trained, well-equipped team and able to respond rapidly anywhere in the city. So even some of the officers that were on the scene that day realized that they did a shitty job in trying to maintain this incident. And I can honestly sit there and say, I agree with these officers. And it also sounds to me like these officers wanted to do more to try to help everybody, but couldn't because of the inadequacies of the weapons that they had. So that, to me, makes a little bit more sense to a lot of things that were happening um, during this unfortunate situation. On August 2nd, San Diego Police Chief William Colander held a press conference to disclose the results of the police department's inquiry into their response to the massacre and the fact an estimated... uh, The fact an estimated 73 minutes had elapsed between the time... The first police officer had arrived at the restaurant and Huberty's death. The results of the internal inquiry found that although the arrival of the SWAT team members was delayed by rush hour traffic, the police acted appropriately in their method of response. That's where I don't agree. And I do understand that maybe they didn't have the right kind of firepower 
to try to go after this guy, but not a single person tried to do any kind of de-escalation or anything like that. You know, maybe if one of them had tried to go up to Huberty and be like, hey, man, is there anything we can do for you to make you stop killing motherfuckers? He might have just said, get me a phone call with a fucking psychiatrist, and this could have all been handled in a more reasonable time and possibly saved a lot of lives. Colander stated that any suggested suggestion police should have stormed the restaurant was ludicrous, adding that officers have been unable to obtain a clear view of the gunman because the windows had been spider-webbed by bullet holes, making visibility in direct sunlight difficult. He also emphasized that the eight-minute delay between the passing of the uh, instruction authorizing all law enforcement personnel to kill Huberty and his death made no difference to the final death toll. Colander finished his report by stating, I believe the operation was handled the way it should have been handled. All right. Well, again, I had to to call bullshit on some of the things that this guy was talking about. There are several reports that we read where the windows were completely shattered out and that shards of glass were causing the issue of sight. So which was it? Spider-webbed windows, which are obviously bulletproof, or the fact that the windows were completely shot out? Which was it? We'll never know. When questions in regard to the actual motive behind uh, the murder spree, uh, Colander dismissed any notion of a racially motive behind the massacre, informing reporters he didn't like anybody. Within two days of the massacre, the restaurant had been refurbished and renovated. The restaurant planned to uh, again open for business in the hope that, as one employee commented, the building would be just another McDonald's. Following discussion between community leaders and executives, a decision was reached on July 24th that the restaurant would not reopen. The renovated restaurant was demolished at midnight on September 26th. Probably smart, because everybody's going to remember that as the spot where 21 people died. Following the demolition of the restaurant, McDonald's donated the ground to the city with the stipulation that no restaurant be constructed upon its site. For over four years, alternate plans to convert the site into either a memorial park or a shrine to the dead were considered. The land was sold in in 88 to Southwestern College for $136,000 with the agreement that a 300-square-foot area in front of the campus extension, uh, extension the college intended to construct set aside a permanent memorial for the victims. McDonald's later constructed... Another restaurant two blocks from the site of the massacre upon West San Ysidro Boulevard. The restaurant chain also announced a commitment to donate $1 million to a survivor's fund with the widow of the McDonald's founder, Ray Crook. Uh, Crock, his real name is Crock, but I call him Ray Crook. Also adding in a personal contribution of $100,000 to assist with burial costs. Financial aid for relatives of the deceased and counseling for survivors. The sum total of donations received by the fund would exceed $1.4 million. Amidst protests from the residents and donors, Aetna Huberty received the first payout from the fund. A permanent memorial to those killed in the McDonald's massacre were formally unveiled in 1990. The memorial consists of 21 hexagonal white marble pillars one to six feet. One six feet each 
one to six feet each, bearing the name of a victim. The sculpture was designed by former Southwestern College student Roberto Valdez, Valdez, I'm sorry, who said of his inspiration for the design, the 21 hexagons represented each person that died. They are different heights representing the variety of ages and races of the people involved in the massacres. They are bonded together in the hopes that the community in a tragedy like this will stick together like they did. The monument is located at 460 West San Jacinto Boulevard. Each anniversary of the massacre sees the monument decorated with flowers. One uh, on the three days of the uh, people of Mexican heritage observed day of the dead candles and offerings are brought on behalf of the victims. Several family members of those killed along with survivors of the massacres filed lawsuit against McDonald's and the police department. The suits were heard in the county court. All lawsuits were consolidated and later dismissed before trial on a defense motion for summary judgment. The plaintiffs appealed the ruling. On July 25, 1987, the California Court of Appeals affirmed summary judgment for the defendants, ruling McDonald's or any other business has no duty of care to protect patrons from unforeseeable assault by murderous madman. And the implemented security measures typically used by restaurants to deter criminals, such as guards and closed-circuit television cameras, could not possibly have deterred the perpetrator, as he did not care about his own survival. Furthermore, the San Diego Police Department were also exonerated by any culpability or negligence with the appeal court ruling, in view of the sheer horror of the ordeal, it is difficult to imagine anything the police could have done or failed to do would have made the risk any greater that, than that to which the victims were exposed before the police arrived. The final lawsuits were dismissed in August of 91. Okay. I agree with the court's ruling on the fact that McDonald's or any other business can't possibly sit there and have any kind of security measure against a psychotic madman coming in and blowing everybody away. That I agree with. But I do th- but I do not agree with their judgment against the police. There was definitely other things that the police could have possibly tried to do. Like I said, they could have tried to defuse the situation by trying to talk to him and getting him to put the guns down. That might have actually put him in range of a sniper or by for, for anybody to possibly take him out a hell of a lot sooner than 73 minutes after arrival. In uh, July of 86, uh, Etna Huberty filed a lawsuit against both McDonald's and her husband's longtime former employer, Babcock Wilcox. The civil suit seeking $5 million in damages asserted her husband's murder spree had been triggered by a combination of poor diet and her husband working around highly poisonous metals without al- adequate protection over the course of many years. The suit specifically cited that no traces of either drugs or alcohol had been di- discovered in Huberty's body at his autopsy, negating any possibility of his action being influenced by either, and that alleged accrual of high levels of lead and cadmium discovered in Huberty's body at his autopsy had more, most likely accumulated via ongoing exposure to the fumes inhaled during the 13 years he had been employed as a welder without sufficient respiratory protection. 
by Babcock and Wilcox, and that the combination of Huberty's exposure to these chemicals with his ingesting high levels of monosodium glucamate in the staple of McDonald's food he regularly consumed had induced delusions and uncontrollable rage. The lawsuit was dismissed in 87, and uh, Etna Huberty died of breast cancer in 2003. Survivor Albert Leos later became a police officer. He served in in several police departments in the South Bay region of San Diego. Leos later joined the San Diego Police Department. So that's it. Whoops. That is the story of a man who walked into a McDonald's and killed 21 people, injured 19. My final thoughts on this, I'm going to wrap a little early tonight. Um, I'm actually shocked that I had enough material to even go this long. My final thoughts on this are this. This man clearly had mental issues, whether it was brought on by what he did for work, poor diet, or whatever. That remains to be seen. I haven't seen anybody go psychotic and kill 21 people from eating McDonald's. I've seen people get fat and ugly from eating McDonald's every day. I'm one of them. Um, but I've n- I don't have any murderous rage. But I also don't have high levels of lead and cadmium in my system either. But um, I would have to do some research to see if that particular concentration of metal can do something to, to um, have anything to do with your mental state. I don't, I don't think I'm going to find anything. This guy clearly had some kind of mental issues. He was hearing voices. He was you know, having issues that he was obviously looking for help for. Um, you know, in the days prior to this. Like I said, I believe he probably has either dual personality or multiple personality disorder. I think that's pretty obvious um, by some of the things that we saw him do. Um, either that or some level of schizophrenia. We'll never know because the, the, the people that should have been helping him didn't pick up the phone. And that's sad. Or they picked up the phone. They just didn't call him back when they said they were going to. Is that a clerical error? Yeah, some of it probably is, but they also had the policy that if somebody's not causing actual harm to themselves um, or they, they, they felt that they were lucid and, and were able to do things um, safely, that they didn't need to get back to them until 48 hours later. That is definitely a failure on that particular department's fault. Um. Other than that, like I said, I mean, there's there's other tactics that the police could have used other than just open fire on the guy. If you don't have a clear shot of him, try to defuse the situation until he could do. Eventually, he's going to walk into range. But if you would try to defuse the situation and possibly send somebody to try to talk to him, maybe not right up on, uh, to the restaurant, but maybe yelling through some of the shattered out windows or, you know, something, you might have saved lives. And at least then that way, he's not killing people. He's not firing those guns. And it would have been a better situation for you guys to go in and take them out. So I do find some failure and some fault at the police here in that particular situation. Now, who I find completely innocent in all of this, obviously, is the victims. But the other people that I find completely innocent of this is McDonald's Corporation. There is no way in hell any restaurant on the planet, and we, we did talk about this briefly, any restaurant on the planet can 
try to protect anything when it comes to a person that is trying to get into their restaurant and open fire and kill a bunch of people. Why McDonald's? We, you know, obviously we're never know. But I do put blame into Aetna Huberty as well. Because her husband came to her and said, I'm going to go hunting for humans. And instead of her calling the police and saying, my husband just admitted to me that he's going to go hunting for humans and has fucking massive firearms. Then she's to blame for this because she didn't do anything to try to stop her husband. She didn't do anything to inform police that this was going to be happening. We also don't know if Aetna knew where he was going. Um, but th- there's a lot of people to blame for this. And if you guys want to use some of the, uh, or learn more about this incident, there's a couple different ways you can do that. Uh, there was a film loosely inspired by this uh, McDonald's massacre called Bloody Wednesday um, that was released in 1988. Um, There is a book called Killers uh, that was written in 1993 that mentions this person. Mass Murders, the True Crime uh, from Time Life Books in 1992. Delivered from Evil, the stories of ordinary people who faced monstrous mass killers and survived in 2011. And then the documentary that I saw that inspired me to do this here today 77 Minutes, the 1984 San Diego McDonald's Massacre focuses upon the murders committed by James Huberty. It was directed by Charlie Min. The documentary features interviews with many of the individuals present present in the restaurant at the time of the murders and the SWAT sniper who ended it. It was released in 2016, and like I said, you guys can see it right now on IMDb Freebie. So if you guys want to check that out, um, the, my only complaint about the documentary was some of the people spoke Spanish and it was very hard to understand the um, subtitles that they were using. Um, they went away too quick and you couldn't pick up on some of what they were saying. And I'm, I'm somebody who's used to watching movies with, with subtitles and for me to sit there and say that they were moving pretty quick, they were moving pretty quick. Um, But other than that, that's all I got for you guys this week uh, when it comes to story time. Uh, But a couple of things that I do want to kind of go through here real quick before I release you guys back into the world. Um, I don't just do this live show. Uh, So every week you can find Money's Crazy Mind, the audio replay on all premium podcast services, Anchor, Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast, CastBox, Amazon Music, Radio Public, and Spotify. It might be on Apple Podcasts, too. I don't have an Apple ID, so I can't get into it. It won't let me set up an account. Um, and then every week now, from here on out, there's going to be an exclusive post-show wrap-up every Friday night that drops at 10.15. This week will be the first exactly 1015 it will be available on all of those platforms <clears throat> and on my website you can check it out at podpage.com 
forward slash monies dash crazy dash mind. And of course, don't miss the show each and every Friday night streaming live on Twitch, YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook, courtesy of Redline Radio LLC. Thank you to Dave for giving me the opportunity for doing this. This is season two, and the inmates are now officially running the asylum. This is going to be the craziest season of Money's Crazy Mind ever. A little bit something about these post-show wrap-ups. Not every episode of the post-show wrap-up, which I uh, affectionately refer to as audio dumps, are going to be about what we talked about on the show that week. Some of them are going to obviously be about the topics we discuss. Some of them are going to be completely brand new content that was just on my mind either after the show went off the air or something that maybe I didn't think about while the show was on the air or maybe something that just didn't fit the topic but I still wanted to talk about and get off my mind. So make sure you guys check out those audio dumps every Friday night at 10, 15 p.m. on Anchor, Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast, CastBox, Amazon Music, Radio Public, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcast. But make sure you bookmark the Money's Crazy Mind website, podpage.com forward slash money's dash crazy dash mind. Every time an episode goes up on any of those platforms, it immediately appears on the website as well. I want to thank PodPage for setting up that website for me. All right. I'm about to go party it out with the guys from Jester's Revenge. I have had a blast doing this episode this week. All the Ghostbusters news, you know, obviously talking about this. And there's also... Another final thought on mass shootings in general, not just this particular one by James Huberty that's going to be in the post-show audio dump that is going to be sent out at 10.15. So make sure you guys check that out. And each and every week there's also going to be a preview of what we talk about each and every Friday night that goes out Friday morning on all of these same platforms and on the pod page website. And of course I share it to all of Redlines media, but you can also check out the money's crazy mind Facebook page for any and all information, not just about money's crazy mind, but money's crazy soundtrack as well. If you guys missed money's crazy soundtrack last night, we are going to play it again to uh, tomorrow afternoon, Saturday from two to 4 PM hit the lights Ray Parker Jr., uh, uh, artist Spotlight, the man who wrote Ghostbusters. And, yes, we do talk about the lawsuit, and we do play Huey Lewis in the news, I Want a New Drug, to try to see if there's any combination between that song and Ray Parker Jr.'s number one hit, Ghostbusters. But we play a lot of Ray Parker Jr., we play some Huey Lewis, we play a a couple other songs from Ghostbusters 1 and Ghostbusters 2. Check it out, 2 to 4 p.m., tomorrow afternoon exclusively on redlineradiollc.com and the Redline Radio app. With that, guys, I'm out of here. Hopefully you guys enjoyed the show this week. If not, I don't care. Come back next week. I think we're going to talk about the dangers of bullying and some of the experiences that I had growing up being bullied and where I think that a lot of the school shootings that have been happening are the result 
of bullying. With that, I'm out. Everybody, have a week. Money's Crazy Mind is proud to be a Redline Promotions and Nameless Faceless production. That's all, folks.